Hello, and welcome to Stern Chats. I'm Charlotte Casimir. And I'm Matt. In this episode, we'll be continuing our two-part series on the cannabis industry. The last episode was primarily concerned with the private side of the industry, so today we'll be focusing on the public sector with our guest, Rebecca Jackson. Rebecca works in the Office of Policy and Government Affairs at the Maryland Medical Cannabis Commission, where she serves as their senior public health specialist. Matt and I will be talking to her about cannabis policy and regulation, particularly in the state of Maryland. We're also going to get into topics around social equity, stigma surrounding the industry, and what students interested in the cannabis industry need to know. Stern Chats has partnered with the Stern Cannabis Business Club for this week's episode. We are super excited for this interview. Um, Rebecca, we just did our little intro on you. We know what you do, but we're really interested in your background leading up to working for MMCC. Um, So you've worked for chronic disease prevention, you know, from asthma to opioid use. So what were you doing before? And then eventually, what were you seeing that made you want to focus on cannabis specifically? Sure. So I, my background is in public health. So that's sort of why I was brought into the commission and also where I started with tobacco. So I was already working for the Maryland Department of Health in the chronic disease and prevention program. And mainly working with tobacco enforcement. So um, there's some very similar and then some very different policies surrounding uh, tobacco versus cannabis. Tobacco is legal everywhere. Cannabis is still federally illegal. So that's a major difference. Um, The federal government classifies marijuana, and that's still the term that they use, not cannabis like most of the states do now. Cannabis is actually a schedule one drug. So under the Controlled Substances Act, it means that it has a high potential for abuse, and there's currently no accepted medical use and treatment in the United States, and there's a lack of accepted safety for use under medical supervision. Uh, Yeah, so marijuana to them is a Schedule One drug. What that means is that they find no medical benefit for it. So what the DEA does is they put each drug into a classification known as their schedule. So that's based on medical value and then potential for abuse. Schedule one and schedule two substances, um, they think have zero medical value. Got it. I was curious, um, just to give listeners some context who might not understand the different scheduling, could you give some examples of the other schedule one drugs? Absolutely. So the other schedule one drugs are heroin. LSD, MDMA or ecstasy, and psilocybin. Schedule two is then uh, cocaine, meth, oxycodone, Adderall, Ritalin, and Vicodin. Schedule three are things like Tylenol with codeine, ketamine, um, anabolic steroids, and testosterone. Schedule four is Xanax, Valium, Ambien. And then schedule five is Robitussin AC, Lyrica. So it may be helpful to think of their scheduling system as made up of two distinct groups, medical and non-medical. In general, Schedule 1 and Schedule 2 are going to have the most regulatory restrictions on research, supply, and access. And then Schedule 5 would be having the least restrictions. Got it. You explain it very clearly, but where each of those fits in is wildly insane to me. Um, Only in the federal government would marijuana be seen as more harmful than meth. (laughs) Right, (laughs) right, right, right. So... It's important to note, if you actually look at the DEA's website, they actually say that they're, what what are the effects from overdose? 
there have been zero overdoses with death reported linked to cannabis use. That's really wild. I mean, what does that mean in terms of how it's treated, whether it's banking, growing, social equity? You know, like what are some of the things that you deal with the most or some of the things you wish the public was generally just more aware of? So what Schedule 1 means, since there's no medical benefit to it in their eyes, it means that there's little to no access to basic banking services. So that's one problem created by the scheduling is that businesses are often unable to obtain very just basic banking services. So everything from loans to lines of credit, um, as simple as opening a checking or savings account, they really just have to deal solely in cash, which is a huge inhibitor of growth in the industry. They also are taxed at a much higher rate. They Cannabis businesses are not able to take most of the corporate deductions that normal businesses are. That leaves these companies like having to pay really high tax rates. So between working in a cash only business and um, paying really high tax rates, there's, you know, expanding is has its own difficulties. Yeah. I mean, that also just sounds dangerous too. That's another, yeah, that's another great point is that a cash only business really opens you up to a lot more theft or just vulnerabilities. Um, you know, the transportation companies, for example, these are something else that we license and there's a lot of restrictions around what these drivers can do. These cars have to look like they have to be unmarked. You don't want to set yourself up to have a carjacking or your, your, you know, products stolen. We definitely need to look, you know, and, and we, there's a lot of discussion about rescheduling. Um, but what you need to have in order to reschedule is studies and research. And there has to be, you know, proof that there are medicinal values so that research is another barrier that we and I specifically working in public health, you know, focused policies, we don't really have enough research to make really strong argument one way or the other. What we do know is that the FDA has approved other drugs or a drug, Epidiolex, which is derived from cannabis um, that's used for seizure patients, uh, two rare forms of childhood onset epilepsy. And there's also some synthetic cannabis products like Marinol, if you've heard of that. It's a little contradictory to their scheduling, and hopefully, you know, one day we can revisit that. But we also know that they deemed it essential in the first few days of the pandemic. Yeah, I, I actually, Rebecca, I think I mentioned this to you earlier. I used to work in the cannabis industry in Colorado, and there's a really interesting history of how cannabis ended up in Schedule 1, and it has everything to do with the Nixon administration and something called the Schaefer Commission. Long story short, but when the Schaefer Commission came out with its recommendations, it said that cannabis didn't belong in the schedule. It should just not be included. Um, but due to political reasons, the Nixon administration decided to put it Schedule 1, and there it has remained ever since. But I know, so we talked a lot about how the federal government views cannabis. I'd like to know a little bit more about Maryland specifically. So can you tell us a bit about the specifics with regard to the medical cannabis rules in Maryland? What, what does that look like if you're a medical patient, or how does one become a medical patient in Maryland? And what does that entitle them access to? Sure. So right now, Maryland is a medical only program. So we do expect adult use to pass this coming session, most likely. But yeah, as of now, it is a, a medical program. We are an independent commission under the Department of Health. So we have 13 commission members. They're appointed by the governor and they serve four-year staggered terms. They all have to be experts in, we have a, they all have a, their own expertise and they're going to be in either medicine or health, pharmacy, 
um, legal, finance, or agriculture. So there's a lot of different areas that matter here to be, you know, to bring to the table with this topic. So we are a regulatory body. We regulate the businesses and the patients. So we oversee all licensing, registration, inspections, testing measures pertaining to Maryland's medical cannabis program. Currently, we have 19 growers, 20 processors, and 96 dispensaries. There can be two dispensaries per senatorial district. And that is to ensure access for everyone. You know, they're not just going to go to the major, majorly populated areas and not address the access in rural areas. In Maryland, you have to be 18 or older. You have to have a written certification for a qualifying condition by a certifying provider. So in Maryland, there are providers that can register with the commission and become a certifying provider. If they're under, if a patient is under the age of 18, you have they have to have a caregiver who's a, le- a parent or legal guardian. So the current qualifying conditions in Maryland for your medical cannabis card are wasting syndrome, cachexia, anorexia, severe chronic pain, severe nausea, seizures, PTSD, severe persistent muscle spasms, glaucoma, and then there's a catch-all, which you see in most states as well. It's sort of a condition that is severe and other treatments have been ineffective, and you can be reasonably expected to find relief from cannabis. I think it's important to note too that Maryland has some of the some really strenuous lab requirements. Yeah, I recall in in the Colorado cannabis industry, getting the testing up I think was one of the biggest lifts for the uh, after legalization because you know you you have when it, when it comes to what's being grown, there were no rules about what you can or cannot use in terms of the agriculture side of cannabis. What what pesticides are allowed to use? Pesticides, are, of course regulated by a federal agency. So none are allowed to be used on cannabis, which is a schedule one drug. So what, what does that testing look like? What do the dispensaries or the growers have to go through to get a product out for sale? Sure. So we also, I, sh- I don't know if I mentioned it before, we also have independent testing laboratories that we regulate and oversee. And the commission actually recently approved and we're working on building out a reference laboratory, which will be our own reference lab, meaning if we're regulating these people, we should be able to verify their results. So we're working on a lab that would be run by us to verify a lab's results or to test product after there's been a complaint or a recall. But Maryland, we, like I said, we'd have some really rigorous testing requirements. So we actually test for water activity and moisture content, and that's to avoid things like yeast or mold. Um, potency analysis. So you have an exact number of, of what content your, you know, THC levels are in the plant or your CBD, you know, all, all of the cannabinoids. So there's a lot of cannabinoids in the plant and there's also a lot of terpenes. And I think as this market or this industry evolves, you'll hear more and more of that. Um, people really honing in on what terpenes work for them, what cannabinoids work for them. CBD is a cannabinoid. So you can look at your label and know that this is high or low in CBD. Um, so yeah, potency analysis, terpenes, terpenes are things like linalool. Um, that's kind of like a lavender smell. So again, people will pick these things out based on, okay, I found that this really relaxes me, or this one is good for daytime. Um, you know, keeps me awake, whatever. Foreign matter inspections. So any, um, you know, hair, bugs, sand, they look under a microscope and make sure that the plant doesn't have any of that before it goes to either a processor or dispensary. Microbial screens um, for mold, bacteria that pose a high risk to patients. And especially, again, this is a medical program. So a lot of people that are using the program have 
you know, suppressed immune systems. Um, we do a mycotoxin screen. So that's for testing for the toxic byproducts of molds and fungi. Heavy metal screens. This is, uh, you know, lead, arsenic, mercury, silver. We don't want to consume those. Residual solvent tests. So that's going to be in like your vapes, um, things that come from a processor that they're using solvents to um, create. And then pesticide residue analysis, like you said. There's a list of pesticides that are allowed, but they do come from directly from what the federal government allows. So we mirror a lot of either that or the USDA in our state, or you know, we mirror their pesticide laws. Um, but so any products that we are selling in Maryland, they all have to pass their lab tests before sale. And any tests that fail, those products have to be either destroyed or remediated. Meaning, you know, if the plant's no longer going to be able to go straight to a dispensary to sell it as flour, you can send it to the processor because they can extract those things out. And then it still has to pass another test and make sure that that, and then again, you know, either keep remediating it or it eventually has to be destroyed. So all of that is, you know, I, I think either whether it's medical or adult use, I think this is all still really important for consumer safety and health. Yeah, the testing, I think, is a really underappreciated aspect of the legal cannabis industry. And I'm actually curious about your opinion on this. You know, we see these like CBD shops popping up all over the place or these websites that'll sell you CBD pills. Matt, and I'm just going to ask this. <laughs> I, I have friends who, because I used to work in the industry, would ask me, Matt, like, should I go buy it here? And I always would tell them, absolutely not. Um, if you want to buy a CBD product, you have to go to a licensed you know, medical or recreational cannabis dispensary because they actually have to test these products that you see online, they don't actually have to test for anything. So the products that you see like on these, in these, you know, CBD shops, those are actually hemp derived CBD products. What does that mean? So the farm bill passed, which allows hemp to be federally legal. Cannabis derived CBD is something that you would have to go to a dispensary, a cannabis dispensary for. So yeah, the stuff that you're seeing in all your products, all the, you know, lotions and creams, everything has CBD in it now. Um, that is hemp derived CBD. And is that more intense? Because I've had like a recess before. Um, the founder was actually one of my sister's friends in college and it really calmed me down. It was helping a lot with anxiety. One of my friends had CBD gummies from just like a, a regular smoke shop in the city and didn't really explain that to me at first. And I took a very small, small bit, and this is not THC, just CBD, and I got in a bad place <laughs> very fast. And is that because there's a difference in testing requirements, basically? So they don't really know the measurements, they don't really know what's in it necessarily? Or do I just have a low tolerance? <laughs> do you know, do you, I was going to say, do you know what the dose was? <laughs> I don't. So this is actually a really good example of why it's really important to make sure that labeling dosing is clearly advert you know it's it's on the product clearly explains i don't know what the i mean if you if it was a high dose then like i would say next time take half of that or start with half the, the, we tend to say like start low and go slow so you start with something small you can always add on if it's not enough but it's hard to undo it and 
this is one of the main arguments or concerns of passing adult use cannabis is that a lot of states that have have seen a spike in their ER visits from overconsumption. We, I, I think there's going to be some with legalization and adult use, I think you're going to see more and more THC limits have come up as a possible possibility. I mean, we, we have capped our edibles at 10 milligrams and that's pretty recent. And there's a lot of people that are, were upset about it. You know, they're used to taking a 50 or, you know, but again, this is, you can take five of them, five of your tens. I don't, yeah, I don't know what your dose was, but you know, I would say next time start with half of that, see how it goes. And I, just to make sure our listeners are all on the same page here, we've talked about medical and recreational or adult use. Can you just help us on the one hand, just define those two terms, what, what distinguishes medical from adult use or recreational? And what's the situation in Maryland, for example, it's currently medical. I think there might be recreational on the horizon. Um, what, what's, what's your perspective on that? Adult use means that it's sort of like you're having a glass of wine to relax. It's, if it's going to be like alcohol and tobacco and be recreational adult use, it's comparable to, you know, I'm using this for just like you would with, you know, a drink at the end of the day. Medical is, you know, I have the condition, they work with their certifying provider, they figure out their dosing, they sort of play, you know, I think either way you, you kind of have to experiment. And I know that that kind of throws a lot of people and they think, well, that sounds terrifying. I don't see it as any different than when a doctor or a provider gives you a prescription and they say, try this and then come back next week. Let me know if you have any really bad experiences or, you know, it's just not working for you. Definitely give me a call. And, we'll, you know, they make sure that they see you every so often and make sure that things are working for you. So I kind of think it's the same. So, you know, in Maryland, we have a really robust program. And I think we're ready now for legalization. We have products that you can consume any way that you would take a traditional medication. So that's something that's going to vary state by state for medical programs to, you know, it's every state's kind of doing their own thing since there isn't any federal guidance. There's no template. We're all just sort of figuring it out as we go. You can sort of look at your other states and see what they did or what worked. I tend to look at other states that have similar size or demographics, populations, but you can piecemeal, piecemeal, you know, pick and choose what you think works or wouldn't work in your own state. But yeah, back to the products we have. I mean, and again, this will vary from state to state, but we have, you know, flour, which is, you know, something you would, your traditional smoking, smoking a joint. There's vaping as well. Transdermal, so like patches that you can put on your skin, tinctures that you would put under your tongue, suppositories, concentrates, which are, again, you'd vape. Topical products, so a lot of ointments and sprays, lotions. And then, like I said, edibles recently went into effect in Maryland. Um, so that's sort of where edibles was a brand new, like a whole new beast because you start to bring on policy from food and those regulations. So we had to bring in people at a new, a whole new set of experts that work with food manufacturing and safety protocols there. But I think in terms of, you know, everyone I think thinks of smoking when they think of cannabis and legalization or medical, but there's so many other ways to consume. And I think in, in states that have been around longer and had programs longer than us on the West Coast specifically, they actually have more sales of all these other products and not actual smokable products. Um, states that started in the early years see more flour being sold and smokable products, but then it flips 
as the market matures, because I think people real, I mean, smoking, you know, general disclaimer is not good for you no matter what. So that's also a public health concern that has been brought up repeatedly, you know, concern, valid concerns. You, you kind of touched on this in your answer here, but I, I wonder if you can go a little more detail. You mentioned, you know, every state that has legalized either medical or adult use cannabis has kind of, there's no template. They're all kind of making up the rules as they go along. So as you, from where you sit, you try and devise new regulations for the industry. Do you work with regulators from other states? Are you trying to build some harmonization across states in these rules? Are you just looking at best practices? What, what's your relationship with the other regulators in other states that are working with cannabis? Yeah, we definitely all work together. Um, it used to be just calling people and, you know, they're usually very welcoming and, and helpful and had states reach out to us as well. And I try to help them as best I can. We, in 2019, we, right before COVID, we had a uh, regulators roundtable here in Baltimore. So we had a bunch of states fly in and we all talked about what was going on and shared what was happening in our state. We also founded a new um, regulators association last year. It's called CANRA, C-A-N-N-R-A, Cannabis Regulators Association. So Maryland was a founding member of that. And it's a group of regulators from across the country. And we have meetings now where we meet and share and discuss policy and how and whether to regulate certain um, or legalize cannabis. The criteria to reschedule is you need adequate, well-controlled studies to approve or rescheduled. So there is actually one one place that is allowed to grow can grow marijuana, as they call it. Uh, you're you're nodding. It's University of Mississippi. So it's the one place that is approved to grow it, and and you can apply to the federal government to study cannabis. The problem is this one university can obviously not supply researchers with nearly enough cannabis to do the right kind of you know research that they need to do in these trials. Not only that, it's not reflective of what each state is actually producing and selling. So that that is the research section of of you know what what is allowed and it's really it means that there isn't really any allowed. Um, in Maryland we have actually a academic research application. This passed in session a couple of years ago, and it basically gives universities that are in Maryland protections to go ahead and study, do some research projects. You know, there are certain penalties that they would be protected from if they did it through our program. So a lot of after hemp was legalized through the farm bill, a lot of these universities already have templates ready to do these studies because the hemp plant is very similar to the cannabis plant. The only difference, that the difference is that the THC level in hemp, hemp plants have to be less than 0.3%. So once it's above that, it becomes a cannabis plant and illegal. <laughs> when I worked in the cannabis industry, the rescheduling versus descheduling debate was a very contentious one. Um, you, you mentioned a little bit earlier, there's thought about trying to reschedule cannabis from the industry side, I think most would prefer completely descheduling, so removing it entirely from the Controlled Substances Act. I remember the fear was if it were rescheduled, then it would place cannabis directly under the FDA's purview. And if that were the case, you would see pills and nothing else. And that would be the only kind of cannabis that they would allow. So I know from the industry perspective, they were terrified of a reschedule. They would like it to be like alcohol, which of course isn't found on any of the scheduled uh, lists. I, I'm curious if you have a take on that. <laughs> if reschedule versus deschedule, do, do you think cannabis should be rescheduled to something lower, like uh, 
around where Tylenol with coating is, or do you think it should be treated like alcohol and removed entirely? I think what they're going to do is continue to pass things like peace, like here and there, they'll pass things that open up research. I mean, they have passed some things that have opened up banking a little bit safer or a little bit, you know, more effectively. I think they'll probably just do things like that as things go along. Some days I think they're going to reschedule it and then there's chatter about that. And then other times I think they will just let us figure it out state to state indefinitely. (laughs) And that's another problem is like, as longer we go on with this state by state sort of setup, I don't, I don't know how they would just overhaul it and standardize every single state to be functioning under one, you know, under the federal government. I know that our, this cannabis regulators association, one of the things that we do offer federal government is, you know, to reach out and we can give data or best practices. We can be a resource for them in discussions about movement in the cannabis world legislation. Right. So you're on one side of this or not one side, but you're in, you know, you're on a side at some point (laughs) in public health policy. I imagine you get so many different opinions. What, what's the kind of pushback have, like, have you seen pushback against either, you know, decriminalizing it, declassifying it from being schedule one? Like what are some of the biggest hurdles I guess that you guys confront some of the biggest hurdles is um, some kind of the same reason I enjoy it is that there's no <laughs> template. It's completely a work in progress. So that part can be nice, but it can also be a challenge when you're trying to actually do something and there's just nothing, there's no trail to follow. There's just, it's, you're really, there's, it's a completely open template right now. Bureaucracy is a huge challenge. I mean, that's, I don't think it's a secret that it's, it's very political and you see some movement here or not based on, you know, administrations that are elected at the moment. And I'm not even talking federal, I'm talking state to state, you know, it's just, or local even, like you'll see challenges based on just bureaucracy. Um, the federal scheduling is a huge challenge, having no research or just a big lack of research. Research drives policy. So when you look at any other industry like tobacco or alcohol, they have data. They do f- national surveys on youth and risk risky behaviors. Um, and there's like one question in there about marijuana. And they, they call it marijuana because it's a federal survey. But we just don't have enough information. I think they did recently add two more questions about it. And I was very excited about that. I can't wait to get those results. <laughs> <laughs> Please let us know. You obviously have this issue where you can't change policy if you don't have data. A, how do you fight that? But what I'm really wondering, too, is what is the pushback you're getting? Like, what are the biggest arguments against cannabis? And how can those arguments really be made if they also don't have data? Sure. So one of the main things that I find challenging is that, and it didn't, I didn't realize it right away, but I, over time have realized that most people just generally don't understand how the government works. And I too didn't pay attention in civics, so I get it. But as a regulatory body, we only draft regulations and implement policy based on what bills were passed by the General Assembly during our legislative session. So the delegates and senators and people that you know we vote into office, local offices are the ones that are voting on these bills. So we never take positions on the bills. 
We can provide a letter of information or provide them data if we have it, but we don't take positions. And there's, you know, with any policy, there's usually a round for public comment. That's the place to really voice your concerns. And a lot of these concerns, um, you know, the people that are very against it, most of the time, if you ask them, if the conversation permits, I will ask them why. I've never met someone that didn't have a very specific reason why they were against it. And, you know, some of them are really valid concerns and they're things that we're actively working on. And we have work groups with stakeholders and industry and you know, other advocacy groups. And one of the ones I hear, you know, a lot is you know, the smell concern. I don't want to smell it everywhere I go. That's a valid concern. And if you look in recent years, tobacco laws have shifted to a place where you can't smoke in restaurants anymore. You can't smoke outside of a building. You can't, um, you know, employers can ban smoking on their grounds. They can ban it altogether. Um, their employers being smokers. That's, you know, a thing now. So these are things that we are considering in policymaking. And I think, this is because there's no because this is also open ended right now. This is a really good place to voice your concerns or speak out to your local representatives about what you want to see in your community. Some of the major um, points of contention that legislators like they bring up in terms of public health and reasons that they don't support legalization are things like impaired driving. There's not currently a test like there is for blood alcohol content, like a breathalyzer. There's nothing like that for cannabis yet. So you can test someone, you know, through a urine test or a blood test, but because cannabis and THC binds to fat cells, it stays in your body a lot longer. So you could have smoked two weeks ago and then get pulled over and for whatever reason have to provide a blood test and it comes back positive. That doesn't mean that you were impaired when you were driving. So there's not a, there's not a measure of intoxication that exists yet in the cannabis space. So the biggest question is how can police officers enforce this? And, you know, how can you, they really will just need to revert back to like a field sobriety test to determine if that person can drive or not. Um, that's a big one that comes up from legislators. Also youth use. And, you know, we don't want minors to start using cannabis more just because it's now legal. They you know, still have to be 18 or 21. Also, environmentally, there's, they take a big toll, these like, especially growers, they take a big toll on your electric grid. So that's something that I think might, we might see more, like more chatter on as this goes on. Pregnancy and breastfeeding is a huge concern for, you know, it comes up that what do we tell pregnant and breastfeeding women? We don't recommend that pregnant or breastfeeding women smoke or use cannabis. Also, like I mentioned with the edibles regulations, accidental poisoning and ER visits, we don't want to see them spike after legalization. And they tend to. You see that in other states that, again, they, you know, that's again why advertising and labeling regulations are so important. You need to, it needs to clearly say on there that it contains THC, that you shouldn't use this when you're about to go driving, you shouldn't use it when you're pregnant. And that is actually the advertising regulations now in the state of Maryland. We also don't allow um, advertising near schools or public parks, rec centers, childcare facilities. 
libraries, substance abuse and treatment facilities. So there's no signage allowed around those places. Um, you know, also using cartoons or mascots to advertise. That's really kind of like targeting minors. Um, and you've seen this even with tobacco and the vaping mart, like vaping industry that they've, you know, they've removed all these fun flavors because again, like you're, those are, that's targeting youth. So that's a big, all of that is a, all of those are big points that come up during session. My, you know, in terms of driving or in terms of some of their concerns, at least from where I'm sitting, they really don't, they're already happening. So like it's already happening and people are, you know, I think from my public health background, I've always been trying to be about meeting people in the middle somewhere, meeting them where they are and going from there. So if people, you know, we know that they are using it recreationally. So I think it's better to, you know, just go ahead and take the reins and make some policies around it so you can make sure that it's safe or that there's some guidelines about what you can and can't do. Yeah, that was that was always our position from the industry side when I used to work in it was, you know, we'd have people confront us about you know, I don't like cannabis. It shouldn't be legal. It's like, okay, well, cannabis wasn't invented when it was legalized. Cannabis has been around and it will continue to be around. So the question isn't, do you want cannabis to exist? It's how would you like it to be around? Would you like it to be in the criminal market where they don't check IDs? They'll try and upsell you on other scheduled drugs that are probably much worse for you. uh, And the funds go to other criminal activities. Or would you prefer a legalized, regulated industry where they check IDs, they test the products, they have all these rules in place to prevent some of these things. So that's really the question you have to answer is which of those two realities do you want? Because you have to pick one. Exactly. Yep. Also, just what you were just describing, it just makes me think of, okay, this is going on with alcohol. This is going on with other substances. It's fascinating. Like you said, you have to meet people in the middle. You know, I think we always hear the thing, you know, do you want to be right? Or do you want to be effective? And you have to meet people in the middle to be effective. I just can't wrap my head around the arguments in terms of like, or not that I can't wrap my head around them. I don't really hear arguments about the safety of the regulated product itself, I guess. Like alcohol should not be given to minors. It They should not, no one should drive with, you know, under the influence. I'm just like, is there any pushback that is specifically around the fact that like marijuana is bad because of XYZ besides like a smell because we we're not mad at cows and cows stink too. I think the main health pushback comes from the smoker, like again, like, you know, the smokable product that they think you tend to think of. There's so many other ways to consume it that are dosed. A lot of people that are using it medically, they're, they're taking like a drop or two under their tongue or they're, you know, they are not taking these massive amounts that impair them. And some people are. I mean, that's it's just like alcohol. It's it's just like a lot of things. I mean, we did have, if you recall, we had a vape crisis of 2019 before COVID-19. And it was we immediately halted every product that was, you know, vaped or all vape pens. We paused and waited for data to come through. I personally looked up every single patient. We got a list. The commission got a list of um, hospitalized patients because of vaping cannabis, looked all their names up. They weren't in our system as patients. So they, this was all black market product. And we ended up finding out that it was vitamin E acetate. That was the problem. So coming back to research, a lot of things that are approved for ingestion, think of a tomato, you know, the things, the products and, and chemicals that you would use to grow a tomato farm. Those chemicals or pesticides, they're all tested for ingestion, not for inhalation. So there's a lot to be, I mean, not even with cannabis. I, when I was working in tobacco, that's when vaping, 
even started and I didn't even know what to do with them. I was like, well, they don't have tobacco licenses because they don't, it's no tobacco in it. It's an electronic nicotine device that didn't fall under our jurisdiction in tobacco for about a year, year and a half before, you know, I, I Again, industry drives policy and usually they're ahead of the government, you know, so we had to, not we, but the federal government did have to put something in place. And now we do, now tobacco does oversee vape shops because I, we just didn't know what to do with it at first. And I remember hearing like these testimonies about why they were, you know, people just coming to testify that they, you know, basically just loved vaping um, or, you know, got them off of cigarettes. You hear that um, where, you know, delegates or senators would ask, well, you, you're a manufacturer, where's your, you know, business? And they were like, well, I do it in my basement. And it was like, you could like the shock on their faces are like, wow, this really does need some oversight. Um, but again, you know, the vaping, vaping in particular is there's just not a lot of data on it any at all, cannabis or otherwise. So you see kind of these trends where like, yeah, a lot of adults are using vapes to get off of, you know, traditional smokable products. It's a complete, some, some are, um, some stop smoking cigarettes. The reverse is true when these like minors start, if you're under the age of 18 and also these devices had like four times the nicotine than a regular cigarette, but then, you know, they were definitely more likely to go on and then start smoking products. So it's just really important. And I think because I come from tobacco, it's just, I think they brought on a lot of tobacco people because we don't want to see the cannabis industry make the same mistakes. And there we've already, I mean, the very first like regulation we put in around advertising was that you cannot make false or misleading statements. And, you know, I, my, my job, my last job was funded by grants that came from the cigarette restitution fund. And we don't want to, you know, the billions of dollars that they had to pay for basically lying for years that this was not harmful. We don't want to see, I think, I don't, I can't say, I mean, I don't know if there's anything specifically really, really harmful about besides, again, smoking is never good for your lungs, but if you're consuming an edible, I, there's really, again, there's just not enough research to say anything is really harmful versus not. But we do know that some, a lot of people are, are benefiting from it, not just, you know, people that have seizures or, you know, it's a lot of veterans use it for PTSD. They face significant challenges with if they're using their VA um you know, insurance or health insurance. A lot of them that we see that our veterans have to end up going through a private insurer. They don't want to risk their pensions or their VA, their benefits from, from the federal government. I think that they're, you know, I, I'm not sure. It's really, there's just not enough research to say that there's anything harmful that I can think of. So speaking as, you know, an MBA here at Stern and our audience, mostly also MBAs, let's say, one of us decides, you know what, I would really like to start my own cannabis business in Maryland. What would some aspiring entrepreneur uh, in the Maryland cannabis space need to go through in order to open up a dispensary, for example, in the state of Maryland? Sure. So Maryland has a capped market. We can, we, there's 102 dispensaries and there's no plan currently to expand that. Growers and processors are also capped. Um, there are other ways to get involved in the cannabis industry. And I get that question a lot. You know, if, if all these places, all these license types are capped, what can I do? And to that, I usually say, like, what do you like doing? Because there are so many, you know, if you want to be with people, I would guide, you know, work in a dispensary. If you want to be completely by yourself and not talk to anyone, go be a trimmer or, you know, some work at a grow where you don't see as many people. But there's also other types of registrations that we oversee. So um, independent testing laboratories, security guard agencies, 
secure transportation companies, waste disposal companies. These are all really big and very you know important businesses that we have to work with too. And so I, you know, with a capped market, if there's no time to, if there's no plan to expand that, I would say, you know, either get into one of those businesses if you wanted to start your own, um, or again, you know, just go work at one of the places that currently exist. But in 2018, we passed House Bill 2. Not we, they passed House Bill 2. General Assembly did. And what that did was, you know, they kind of realized that demographics among business owners weren't, were, were really white. And they decided that that wasn't reflective of Maryland's really diverse population. So they expanded the cap. And in 2020, we added new licenses, new licensees that were all minorities. It's speaking of, you know, we can't talk about cannabis without talking about social equity. And real, real quick question. Do you have to be a resident of the state of Maryland to operate a cannabis business in the state of Maryland? No, no, you do not. So we actually have, you know, quite a few multi-state operators. So there's a variety in business and the businesses too. I mean, you have these like very large multi-state operators. You also have these small mom and pop stores. We've done some, you know, policy around supporting those businesses as well. This is something I've always been really interested in. And in 2018, it was, um, I was doing some research into cannabis policy. And at the time this was going on, former GOP House Speaker John Boehner came up and Kind of his background about, you know, in 2011, he said he was unalterably opposed to the legalization of marijuana. In 1999, he voted against legalizing medical cannabis use in D.C. Um, in 2015, he wrote to a constituent that he didn't want to reschedule or reclassify cannabis as less dangerous under federal law because he was concerned that it would basically, you know, increase abuse of all variety of drugs, including alcohol. Um, and then in 2018, he announced that he was getting into the cannabis business. And that was wild. But an article from uh, NPR really struck me. And they were saying that, you know, his turn, quote, un well, not quote, unquote, this is their quote, uh, perfectly illustrates the ironies of the way Americans think about the weed industry as it slinks out of the gray market. The people positioning themselves to profit from the nominally legal weed boom are overwhelmingly white. But the people who continue to be punished for its illegality, in part, due to pro policies that Boehner has supported, are most likely to be Black. So the article is saying, furthermore, you know, Black people are bearing the brunt of the drug war, and now they're being shut out of the weed boom. So have there been any positive movements on this front, whether it's education, policies, otherwise, or just like anything you're, you know, dealing with around social equity now or then? That's interesting that we should know about. Yeah, definitely. So you can't even discuss social, uh, cannabis without discussing social equity and diversity in the cannabis space. As I was saying before, we, we passed House Bill 32 in 2018 that opened up and added in more licenses that went to minorities so it's actually unconstitutional to give anyone preference based on their race. What we did do in 2019 with this new round of, of growers and processors was this, the federal census gives a list of economically disadvantaged areas and zip codes. So when we did that new round, we actually gave points to those that were either living in and had provided proof of residency or plan to open their business in one of these economically disadvantaged zip codes. Yeah, the way cannabis laws were enforced, you know, they definitely harmed communities and social equity programs are created as a remedy to address and repair that damage, um, damage from incarceration, 
leads to a breakdown of a family and definitely a loss of trust in government and law enforcement. So yeah, in twenty in twenty eighteen we awarded more licenses. We the General Assembly specifically called for greater diversity among licensees. We opened up caps and we did, you know, we gave points based on the living in these economically disadvantaged zip codes. And in October 2020, we announced you know, stage one pre-approvals for three, three additional growers and eight processor licenses. I think with House Bill 32, which will come up in session this year, that is our legalization bill. I know it because we've already tried it like three times. Um, <laughs> it might pass this time, but it's, it definitely it establishes a social equity fund that promotes and incentivizes participation in the adult use cannabis industry by groups that were disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs and specifically black communities. Some of other legislation that, you know, we might see is, you know, overturning convictions and prohibiting, you know, revoking parole, probation, pretrial releases for legal cannabis activities. So we're trending in a slow, albeit positive direction. Everything in government is slow, but yeah, it's it's baby steps. And I, I feel like there's so much to do and so much to work on. I think people think we have like a really robust policy team. It's like four of us. So we, you know, whatever pa- passes in the General Assembly, we work on implementing that. But we, you know, any other projects that we do or RFPs that we put out, we like to first include you know, historically black colleges and universities, we try to pick them if they apply, if they so choose to apply to a bid. Um, I mean, they still go through the regular process, but that's something that we do factor heavily in and make sure that we invite, again, these like HBCUs a lot to the historically black colleges and universities to the table whenever we can. Um, there's also a, there's also a really fine line of not looking like you're targeting that community, if that makes sense. Like you don't want to go out there in, in these communities and just do tons of outreach for cannabis because that kind of looks like targeting too. I think re-education of police and local communities. Well, I think, yeah, the, I mean, there definitely needs to be like reform just everywhere across the board. Well, I think it's really important to like see, you know, the legalization of cannabis as a potential way of helping to remedy some of those past issues. But to your point, it is a tricky needle to thread, uh, making sure that you're not targeting, as you said, uh, certain communities over others, not giving undue preference to one, but at the same time, recognizing, you know, there was a historical wrong that was done. And we have an opportunity here with this legalization to, you know, begin to address it. I was curious, you know, you talked before about the lack of data that exists when it comes to cannabis consumption and impacts. I'm curious from where you're sitting, have you seen any really interesting research that's coming down the pipe um, that you think would be helpful for you as a regulator or for moving cannabis legalization forward or just something interesting that you've learned in your studies? In terms of research, I mean, again, we have this uh, open <laughs> application. I'm not sure, you know, they're not really beating down the door for it because they're very scared to lose their federal funding. But, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that as the stigma is reduced and a lot of this gets normalized, that they will start signing up and, you know, become involved. I think it's really interesting what I've learned from the plant or, you know, research about the plant is that a lot of the things that we maybe thought were the most important or, you know, THC levels, what they mean or what they do for you, you know, they really need to do more studies on it. And I've, like I said before, I think I've noticed that a lot of studies on certain cannabinoids or certain terpenes were, are found to be highly effective for certain people. 
And it really does depend on that person. It's such a personal experience, you know, but for the most part, you know, when you look at the studies from Epidiolex, everyone that was on it that had seizures, they, they did, I mean, it dazzled them, the results from the study. And I think that if you want to, there's so many components that you could study about the plant that I'm looking forward to see what, you know, what they find. Also shameless plug that CBD was um, specifically with like child epilepsy. That was called Charlotte's Web, wasn't it? That's a very, very big one. Uh, started in Colorado. Yeah. <laughs> it was for a girl named Charlotte, um, who I think she sadly passed away a few years ago, but it was a company that derived this specific strain that was very high in CBD for her specifically, and it did wonders for her. Um, and now it's available to, I think, more folks out of state. Obviously not grown in Colorado and sipped there because that's legal, but <laughs> um, I actually have, if I can, I have a one quick anecdote about terpenes we talked about. And I think you, you explained terpenes are basically all plants have terpenes. Um, they were evolutionary designed to protect plants from predators and pests and things like that. Um, but they give cannabis its smell flavor profile, and they do have an impact on the psychoactive effects. So in my old job, I was told the story by one of our bud tenders. We had a patient who would come in and he told us, you know, every other time I consume cannabis, I have a really bad time. I like break out in hives. And I don't know what's wrong. And in our stores, we, in front of all the strains that we sell, will put icons representing the three most dominant terpenes in each of those strains to help people, you know, better figure out what strains are right for them. And he, we were explaining this to him and he looked at, he pointed out one of the terpenes and the icon we use is a red pepper. And he said, what's that? I said, oh, that's represents a terpene called karyophyllene. Um, and that's usually found in things like peppers and stuff like that. He said, oh, well, I'm allergic to pepper. And we said, oh, really? Well, then you should probably avoid any strain that has this terpene in it and you'll have a great time every time. And he did exactly that. And he's never had a bad time since. So so that's that experimentation phase where you figure out. And that's what I was saying. I mean, you really just have to experiment and read these labels and know what is in your products that you're consuming. A lot of people, you know, they just they notice over time and experimentation that this Anything really high in this really makes me feel a lot, you know, my, all my aches and pains are gone. Our biggest patient group is age 55 and older. And they, you know, I love talking to them. I, I've gone to some retirement communities where they talk about what strains they use for sleep and what strains they use for their arthritis. And they've, you know, experimented enough to figure out what works for them. The other issue that we have with cannabis, though, is this, you know, they'll find that that works for them and then suddenly it's discontinued. It's like, it's not as standardized as medication where you can just go pick up the same thing each time and batch to batch, same plant, same strain, not, it's not same plant, but the same strain, uh, you know, this time it came out weaker on this THC or CBD or whatever, whatever terpene or cannabinoid they were looking for. So that's something that people are constantly reaching out about. Like, you know, I can't find my medication that I want and I can't find, you know, the profiles different this time. So that's something that you're going to see, too, where it's just not as standardized as a lot of other markets. Um, Earlier, you said something I thought was really interesting. You talked about um, one of the things that you enjoy about your job is that it is so new, which is funny because that is exactly what our previous guest who worked in the private, you know, in the cannabis industry said, drew him to the cannabis industry so everything was so new. Um, would you say that that's the most interesting or rewarding part of your job? Or what, what do you find the most rewarding about uh, your role? So because I specifically come from a public health background, I think education and, and research are the most important parts to at least do my job research so you can shape 
policy, but then education and just by education, I mean, just blank was having conversations with people, meeting people in the public, um, going to events or, you know, conferences or groups of, of patients, since this is a medical program here still, and making sure that what policies we pass and what regulations we promulgate are, we have a shared interpretation with the stakeholders and the public. Um, again, I think when you ask someone and you drill into what specifics about it, you know, what they want to talk about, they, you know, they cut, they usually have a, something they want to discuss. And, um, just, I think it's a big misconception that this whole industry is not like, it's, it's so much more high tech and secure than I think people think. And when we give tours to people that haven't seen a grower or a processor or dispensary before, they're usually really surprised um, how regulated and how, you know, high tech everything is. You know, I can think specifically, we passed a bill, uh, House Bill 617, which was for, it's called Connor, Connor and Raina's Law, went into effect December of 2020. But it's for use of medical cannabis and policy for administration during school hours and events. Okay, so when you hear that, immediately people were like appalled. School Nurses Association lost their minds. They were like, okay, so kids are going to be smoking in the hallways is what you're saying. And, you know, this is kind of where I like to jump in and, and have a conversation and educate and give people a better picture of what's what the policy really says and make sure that we share this, this you know, understanding of what the rules are. So, you know, what, what was happening is parents were having, like, we don't have, I think we have a, like maybe 200 minor patients, but again, these patients, they're minors and it's, you know, for seizures and severe, severe autism and behavioral disorders. They, um, since minors have to have a qualified caregiver administer their medication, they were fine. You know, some of these parents were finding that they had to leave work twice a day, go to school, take their kid off the premises, administer their cannabis under their tongue, and then take them back. It's a nightmare. So, you know, we passed this law to, or you know, the General Assembly passed this law and then we wrote the regulations. But after regulations are implemented, it's this piece that's really important to me is communication and transparency and, and answering questions about any given policy. So in this particular circumstance, you know, we worked with the school nurses association and the and department of education on these very specific policies so that the school nurse can just give what is the, you know, just like they go down and get their other any other medication and then it provides protections for them to do so. So, you know, the type, these types of things, you know, smoke, smokable cannabis is not even a question. Like there's no, they're not allowed to. <laughs> so that's not happening. But again, I think the public here, you know, people hear certain policies passed and read it and don't share interpretations that we have. And, you know, the regulators, us, the, you know, all these lawyers, it's only one perspective. Like we definitely want industry, you know, stakeholders, everyone's perspective so that we don't miss anything either. And we make sure that we are sharing the same reading of the same words on, you know, in, in a regulatory book. <laughs> like sometimes you find that you're, you're off and, you know, we've found that we've passed things before that once they were effective, we realized, Oh, like we're, they're not reading it the same way. And you have to go back and amend it. And there's so much of that 
and cannabis. I think the um, the office that publishes our our books is really tired of us. We've had f- I've had five books since I started because and they keep getting thicker because as we go along, you need more regulations or you need amendments. And again, like getting it right the first time is ideal. And I think that's why we've been unable to pass adult use. And I think it it will either pass this year in session, which starts next month, or it might also go to a referendum and the people would vote on a ballot in November. Um, either way, we're going to work on a bill this session that would make sure that we're ready if a referendum is what happens. But yeah, making sure that it's right, it's a lot easier to, to just delay. And, and unfortunately, things move slowly versus passing a bad bill. It's a lot harder to fix that later. Well, I think we can all agree on how important it is to get educated on these types of issues. And we sincerely appreciate your time and your perspective in educating us a little bit about the Maryland uh, situation here. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for having me.